Hebrews chapter 6 paints a picture of two different paths that can be followed in verses 1 through 8. One path is laid out in verses 1 through 3, and the other path is laid out in verses 4 through 8. The chapter goes on to culminate in an incredible statement of hope that wraps up the earlier discussion in chapter 5 about the great high priest. So going to verses 1 through 3, we find a statement in verse 1 that says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. That can be a little bit confusing, but two things can add clarity. One is if you simply replace the word leaving with building upon. So then the sentence would read, Therefore, building upon the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. Now the Joseph Smith translation reads this way. It throws the word not in by saying, Therefore, not leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on into perfection. Then we find in verses 1 and 2 the first four principles and ordinances of the gospel. They're not couched in syntax that reads like our article of faith, but the elements are all there. We see that the element of repentance is mentioned in verse 1, and then faith toward God is also mentioned in verse 1. Then in verse 2, we see of the doctrine of baptisms and of the laying on of hands. Now the gift of the Holy Ghost is not mentioned here, but it's implied by being the gift that is given through the laying on of hands. Then resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment is mentioned also. Then verse 3 reads, And this will we do if God permit. Now the Joseph Smith translation is very interesting here because it includes the following phrase, And we will go on unto perfection if God permit. So it creates symmetry in this three-verse sequence where in verse 1 it says, Let us go on unto perfection. That's one bookend, and then the Joseph Smith translation gives us the second bookend in verse 3. We will go on unto perfection. As if to say, uh, we will be able to follow that pathway where we can ultimately enter into the rest of the Lord, which we talked about back in verse or chapter 3, uh, and shows up as well in chapter 4 of Hebrews. If God permit if we build upon these principles and ordinances of the gospel. So that's the first possible pathway. Now, the second possible pathway, and, and by the way, we could call that the way to perfection, or the way to completion, or the way to exaltation. Now, verses 4 through 8 outline something very different. It goes like this. For it is impossible, in verse 4, for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, verse 6, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. 
verse 7, For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth a blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. So the picture is painted here in verse 8 of thorns and briars, which is um, a little bit like uh, when you think of the Lord of the Vineyard in the olive tree allegory, where he was just doing everything he could to salvage those unproductive trees or those unproductive branches. Uh, but in the end, there was some burning that took place in that vineyard. And thorns and briars uh, have been likened in the book of Matthew, for example, as the deceitfulness of riches, or as the care and pleasures of this world. So thorns and briars are a real problem, and if you as a plant get to the point where you are bearing nothing but thorns and briars, that is tantamount to destruction and perdition. So the second pathway is the way to sin. It's the way to ruin. It's the way to perdition. This phrase, crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, is, is quite an alarming uh, graphic phrase. And so is the phrase that says, put him to an open shame, when we read verse 6. So you can't do that unless you have been once enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift, as it says in verse 4. Uh, you, you have to have a certain heart. And um, it was probably typified most dramatically in the scriptures, perhaps. I guess it's typified in a lot of places, but I think of that terrible uh, early Friday morning when Jesus is captured from Gethsemane and taken before Annas and Caiaphas and then ultimately before Pilate, and then over to Herod, and then back to Pilate, and then ultimately delivered to the executors who took him to Golgotha. As I think of that sequence of events, I think about the darkness and the, 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 the amount of possession of those members of the Sanhedrin in particular on that uh, in the way that they behaved with their mocking and spitting and scourging. Interestingly, too, they, in that case, they delivered him, ultimately after some kangaroo court-style trials, they delivered Jesus to Pilate, to the Romans, and they then executed them. And It reminds me of um, the phrase in the Lord's Prayer that says, Deliver us from evil. Yet the great irony is that Jesus himself was delivered to evil uh, by his own. His own people was delivered to the Romans and delivered into that evil circumstance. So that's, that's to paint a picture of this shame and the, 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 the attitude that was behind uh, the crucifixion of Christ. And uh, we don't want to get anywhere near that. So the author of Hebrews is talking about an opposite pathway than the one laid out in verses 1 through 3. Uh, kind of reminds you of the, the, the famous poem of Robert 
frost about two roads in the woods and um, he took one particular one and that has made all the difference and that evokes the same image as, as the narrow way versus the broad way and it's clear throughout the scriptures that this narrow way is a covenant way that it's marked by the making and keeping of covenants well to continue just for a moment with this idea of a pathway that leads to ruin or perdition here's a quote by Bruce R. McConkie he says commission of the unpardonable sin consists in crucifying unto oneself the son of God afresh and putting him to open shame commit this unpardonable crime to commit this unpardonable crime a man must receive the gospel gain from the Holy Ghost by revelation the absolute knowledge of the divinity of Christ and then deny the new and everlasting covenant by which he was sanctified calling it an unholy thing and doing despite to the spirit of grace he thereby commits murder by assenting unto the Lord's death well, and that's kind of what brought the image of the Sanhedrin to me that is having a perfect knowledge of the truth he comes out in open rebellion and places himself in a position where he would have crucified Christ knowing perfectly the while that he was the Son of God Christ is thus crucified afresh and put to open shame so I think it's worth clarifying that this very strong and disturbing phrase of crucifying the Son of God afresh and putting into open shame would apply to someone who has consistently over and over and over rejected the opportunity for repentance it is not descriptive of someone who makes mistakes and then repents and because of the great atonement of Christ that possibility is available to all of us who have sinned uh, and so that's that's an important clarification to make there that this is talking about the ultimate end that um, one is headed towards if they never avail themselves uh, of the conditions of repentance as it's as it's said in the Book of Mormon I think in the Book of Helaman conditions of repentance now the next verses 9 through 12 take on a more hopeful tone then the tone becomes even more hopeful uh, as we move towards the end of the chapter it says in verse 9 but beloved we are persuaded better things of you so we're persuaded that you're not headed down this very bleak and uh, dark path that I've just described it says in verse 10 God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love I think that's a comforting phrase that as you're doing good and as you're working in love God is mindful of that we're, we're being told that through Scripture and then in verse 12 the followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises now that's also a hopeful uh, a hopeful phrase and that applies in particular to Abraham who received the promise and remained faithful and we know that ultimately he went into the rest of the Lord and so we find some language here in verses 13 uh, thir well 13 in particular 
where it says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Interesting. If God's going to make an oath, then the strongest terms upon which he can make that oath is to swear by himself, since he is God. And he told Abraham, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And then we find in verse 15, after he had patiently endured, he did obtain the promise. Right. So we learn in verse 17 that Abraham is a type of someone who teaches us that, as it says, wherein God, willing more abundantly to shew unto the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. All right, so immutable. Another way of saying this is probably just simply to say, in other words, his promises are sure, and the story of Abraham does demonstrate that. In verse 18, it says it was impossible for God to lie. And so we learn about his oath, or that he swore by himself in verse 13, and then we're reminded in verse 18, it's impossible for him to lie. And if this is the case, this should give us great hope. And uh, the verse ends by saying, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Now, verse 19, which hope we have as an anchor to the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Okay, so now, this hope is in crescendo, because we've moved from having Abraham as a type of hope to the great high priest himself that is introduced in Hebrews chapter 5, who doesn't just figuratively enter the veil of a temple as the ancient high priest did, but he literally enters the veil into heaven. So a little bit more on that. Uh, when we read that word veil, and, and by the way, let me just read verse 20 now, whither the forerunner is for us entered even Jesus. So he's acting as a forerunner by penetrating the veil, the actual veil into heaven. Then it says, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we're ending, we're, we're, we're bringing that discussion to a close of him being the great high priest. And uh, it's just beautiful language and beautiful imagery. Now veil in verse 19 has reference to the veil of the temple. And what would happen is that on the, the, the um, on Yom Kippur, which is also the Day of Atonement, uh, that is when the high priest had the responsibility of entering through the veil of the temple into the Holy of Holies. And this was a, what symbolically cleansed Israel. So that's what that was all about. And what that was doing was looking forward to the time in which Jesus himself, who is described here by the author of Hebrews as the great high priest, would enter through the real veil into heaven, and that way it would um, uh, prepare the way for us to return to heaven. So that's the ultimate promise of hope. Uh, it gives us anchor to our souls, as it says in verse 19, or it gives us an anchor to the souls. And that's because, once again, the great high priest has penetrated the actual veil into heaven. And he's prepared the way for us 
to follow the pathway laid out in verses 1 through 3 of this chapter. So, to use earlier language from Hebrews, that we may enter into the rest of the Lord. Now that includes both now, because of the rest that the covenant gives us, and later because of the ultimate rest exaltation gives us. And here we can receive our inheritance. And I would add, receive our inheritance as a composite, as a married composite. There are other times in the New Testament in Paul's writings where he talks about neither is the man with in the Lord without the woman or the woman in the Lord without the man, which is a very interesting way to think about exaltation. And then we we have this great statement in Romans 8.17 where we're told that we can be heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That's a nice closing thought for this chapter. However, I just want to return to this concept of hope for just a moment because I have commentary from President Dieter Eck F. Uchtdorf who talks about the, the importance of this hope and and uh, adds an interesting spin on this, uh, emphasizing that we uh, can't be entirely passive in our possession of hope, as if it's something that um, comes to us and then leaves us um, with without our agency being involved, which is kind of an unusual way to talk about hope, I think, and uh, is, is enlightening. He says, hope is a gift of the Spirit. It is a hope that through the atonement of Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection, we shall be raised unto life eternal, and this because of our faith in the Savior. Now, here's the interesting part. This kind of hope is both a principle of promise as well as a commandment. And as with all commandments, we have the responsibility to make it an active part of our lives and overcome the temptation to lose hope. So that's from President Uchtdorf, and suggests that we have actually a responsibility. I, I would add that I think there are times when it seems like it's out of our power to regain hope. Uh, and and uh, during those moments, I think what still is within our power is to plead for it and to go before the throne of grace boldly, as it's said earlier in Hebrews, and ask for this hope to 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 come to you and to be given to you as a gift of the Spirit.